morning to you all. Good to see you. So good to have Mark and Susan. Thank you for that very encouraging word. It's good to hear what God is doing and how he's opening doors for ministry and granting you favor in people's lives for his sake, for the sake of the gospel and for their souls. So it's really encouraging. Thank you so much. All right. Well, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we've been working our way through this chapter in order to think through what the Lord would have us um, see with regard to the question of what about marriage. We've been going through a number of different books together, and I've decided to spend a little more time on 1 Corinthians 7 because there's so many issues in our culture about marriage and about uh, sexual issues that it seemed like it would be good to spend a little while on this chapter and not get the big picture in one Sunday as we've been doing so with other books. There are a couple of different questions that I think are very important for us to think about as we begin um, looking at this chapter, and that that is, number one, are you a black and white kind of person? And what I mean by that is not in terms of racial black and white, but in terms of do you tend to see things as either right and or wrong? Do you tend to see things as either good or bad? And do you believe that if you make a decision, uh, there's only one right decision to make? And the issue with regard to finding God's will is an issue of finding the one right thing to do. That's what it means to be black or white. Well, I was talking with uh, Jan and I think Molly this week and just noted the fact that if you're a black and white person, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 will drive you crazy. And I hope you'll see what I mean by that. Uh, What's going on um, in 1 Corinthians is that Paul established his church, and he is now writing his second letter to the Corinthians. And he's, in the beginning of the book, he is dealing with reports that he's heard from the church. People have told him about things that are going on in the church, and he's addressed those things. But he's also received a letter of questions from the church itself. And he's now beginning to answer those questions. What should we do in light of these matters? And so uh, today we want to talk about that. Uh, In the beginning of the chapter, Paul has been answering the question, what about marriage in regard to the desire to be more holy? Um, The issue seems to be, and we're having to read between the lines because we don't have the questions that the Corinthians gave him, But based on the answers that he gives, it appears they ask something like, should we avoid uh, physical intimacy, not only outside of marriage, but inside of marriage, in order to be more holy? And so he talks about the importance of physical intimacy in marriage, and yet he raises the question of celibacy. Is celibacy a good thing, which means to be content not married and content without physical intimacy? And so he says, for some... That's a good thing. And he would say, in light of things that are going on or are about to happen in the life of the church in Corinth, um, it would be a good thing that people avoid marriage. And we're going to look at the latter part of the chapter today and talk about uh, basically the question, what are some things that Paul is encouraging the believers there in Corinth to think about with regard to the question of Um, basically, I guess you could put it, are there things to consider with regard to the if and when of marriage? Um, Should I get married? And when should I get married? Because the things that are going on and the questions that they've asked have to do with the the question of, is marriage a good thing? And should marriage be pursued uh, regardless of the circumstances? And so we'll see what he has to say about that in these verses, verses 25 through 40, because Paul has already encouraged the believers there to to ask themselves, basically, do you have the gift of celibacy? Uh, Are you content not being married? Are you content without physical intimacy? If you're not, he says, then you need to pursue marriage. And yet in these verses, he's going to talk about the the kinds of things we need to consider in the pursuit of marriage. So let me read for you these verses and follow along if you have your Bible, beginning in verse 25. Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. 
but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask for grace to have humble, open, teachable hearts. We pray for grace to see what we need to see today, to see the truth of your Word, to see how it applies in our own hearts and lives, and grant us grace to trust you, grant us grace to uh, live out uh, what we see here in your Word in light of our own circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, we want to touch on several different things uh, that we find here. I want to highlight uh, four things that Paul touches on here with regard to the question of uh, if and when someone should get married. The first thing is circumstances. The second is devotion to the Lord. The third is sexual temptation. And the fourth is desirable partners. Uh, the first one, circumstances, is seen in uh, verses 25 through 31. Now, depending on your translation, I read from the New American Standard. If you're reading from an ESV, you'll notice that it is translated differently. And maybe some other translations have some different translations as well. In verse 25, it says, Now concerning virgins in the New American Standard, in the ESV it says, Betrothed. Now concerning betrothed people or engaged people. And we'll talk more about the differences between the translations and why there are different views on what's going on in this chapter. But just note that, that there is some controversy over exactly who Paul is addressing. But we can at least say at this point that in verse 25, he's talking to more than likely the never married, to those who have not been married yet, the never married. He's already spoken to the widows. Uh, he's always also addressed those who may have already divorced and the question of remarriage and those kinds of things. So we can probably say he's, he's focusing more at this point on the question of those who've never married. Should they be married? Should they get married? Maybe that's what the Corinthians were asking. What about those of us who've never married? Uh, should we 
avoid marriage for one reason or another. And what Paul says is, interestingly enough, in verse 26, is he gives an apostolic opinion. So you notice in verse 25, he says, I have no command of the Lord, meaning uh, I have no uh, command uh, that was given by the Lord when he was on earth. Earlier in the chapter, he references uh, the Lord Jesus saying that um, divorce is, was not God's intention, intention from the beginning. This is a reference to Matthew 19 and other passages in the Gospels. Here he's saying, I don't have a command from the Lord in, in light of what he said when he was on earth, but he says, I give an opinion. Now think about that. This is um, a believer in the Lord Jesus, and not only a believer, but an apostle, someone who represents Jesus Christ on earth. And he says, I give an opinion. That's an interesting thing for an apostle to say. I give an opinion. Now, is that like, um, you know, if you were to ask me my opinion, would that be the same kind of opinion? No, it would be an a big difference between my opinion and Paul's opinion. Because Paul's opinion carries apostolic weight. Even though he's not saying, I'm giving you a command, he is saying, I'm giving you a, an opinion. Another way to translate that is judgment. I'm going to tell you what I think. You're asking me, what should you do? I'm going to tell you what I think you should do. And you're not just asking anybody, you're asking an apostle who represents Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress or impending distress. The word distress there can mean pressure, can mean calamity, even in some contexts can be used in terms of really excruciating situations like torture. Uh, So he's talking about a really difficult situation. He says in view of the impending or present distress It is good for a man to remain as he is. And what does he mean, remain? So he goes on to say in verse 27, if you're married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. That's my apostolic opinion. And he goes on uh, to say, though, in verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. If you do not follow my apostolic opinion, you have not sinned. Uh, He says, and if a virgin or betrothed marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. The word trouble in this life uh, is literally tribulation in the flesh. You're going to have trouble in light of what? The impending or present distress. Um, He's highlighting the fact that he's talking to them in light of certain circumstances, And he's not giving them a blanket command. He's saying there's something coming that's going to be very, very difficult. And if you want to avoid even more difficulty than what's coming, then don't add to it the trouble that will come if you're married and you have children. And so the question is, what is that all about? He'll go on to talk about uh, in verse 29 and following Uh, about the time being shortened, about those who have wives, um, it'll be like they had none. Those who weep as if they did not weep, rejoice as if they did not rejoice. Those who buy as if they didn't possess what they own. And then he says in verse 31, those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. And the question is, what is he talking about there? What is the form of this world that's passing away? Well, some people think he's just talking about the fact that now that Christ has come and now that people are following Christ, uh, there are just going to be um, more difficult circumstances um, because of the hostility toward Christ. Christ said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. That's the way some people take what Paul is saying. It seems like he has something else in mind here. Later on in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul says, um, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, 
upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The ends of the ages. He says that for Paul and the people he's talking to, the ends of the ages have come upon us. And so, whereas some would say maybe Paul is simply talking about the end of the world, others would say, no, he seems to be talking about something that's really significant, but it's not the end of the world, it's the end of the Jewish age. And that's not something maybe we talk a lot about, but going from the world under the old covenant, so to speak, to the world under the new covenant, for a Jewish person person was world-changing. It was life-changing. And what was about to happen in about 15 years or so, based on the writing of uh, this letter, about 15 years, uh, the Romans were going to come in. They were going to lay siege to Jerusalem, which would go on for many, many years, and then they would destroy the city and destroy the temple. And that would be God's judgment on Israel for the rejection of Jesus. And the Bible talks about it in terms of the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. So there was a kind of world-changing event that was going to happen that would impact uh, the world in various ways. And some think it might have been tied to that. Others think it may be um, a famine that was going to hit that may or may not be tied to that. So there's all kinds of ways to look at what's going on here. But for Paul... When he says the world is passing away, there was something really significant about to happen. And one way or the other, it was going to impact the Corinthians in really negative ways. It was going to be a really hard, hard season. And so he's encouraging them to realize that the decision that you're having to make about marriage and other things, uh, you need to understand that you need to make those decisions in light of circumstances. We talked a couple of weeks ago about you know, different things uh, we should keep in mind as we pursue uh, marriage as Christians. One of the things we said was, uh, remember that you can't live on love, which means you have to recognize that as a husband, you have to be able to provide for your wife. And so the question is, are you prepared to do that? And when you get married, you never, even if you don't intend to have children right away, you never know, you might have children right away. And so are you ready to have children when you get married? Those are circumstances that you have to anticipate. And so he's talking about the fact that circumstances are important. And Paul is saying, I give you my apostolic judgment that things will get really difficult and your decision about whether or not to marry needs to factor that in. I'm not telling you, I'm not commanding you not to get married, but I am telling you that you will have to evaluate how you look at those circumstances. There was a a general in World War II who was leading his men, and all of a sudden they were surrounded by the enemy. And he looks at his men and he says, for the first time in this whole campaign, men, we can now attack the enemy in all directions. Which is a way of looking at his circumstances and saying, yeah, it's a dire situation, but it's also an opportunity. And, and so just because things are difficult doesn't mean you don't still see that there are opportunities here. And you might say, yes, there's an impending distress, but I think moving forward with marriage would still be the thing to do. You might see the circumstances as still being positive and not negative, And the amazing thing is that Paul says, that's okay. If you do that, if you disregard my apostolic opinion, if you evaluate the circumstances and you move forward with marriage, you have not sinned. It's okay. And so it's a very, very fascinating passage, but it can drive you crazy if you want black and white kinds of answers. Well, secondly, he doesn't only touch on the issue of evaluating your circumstances, but he talks on the issue of devotion to the Lord. You'll notice in verse 32, at the beginning he says, but I want you to be free from concern. And so he's been talking about the the impending distress, and then he says, uh, I'm trying to spare you from trouble, and then I want to free you from concern. Um, I think that's translated anxieties in the English Standard Version. Uh, The only other time that word is used 
is in Matthew 28:14, when the religious leaders are telling the guards who were at the tomb, uh, we will make sure you don't get into trouble with the authorities. Just tell them uh, that the body was stolen. And so the idea of anxiety is really fear for your life kind of anxiety. Uh, not just everyday run-of-the-mill concern, oh, what are we going to have for dinner tonight or, or whatever. He's talking about real concern, like this could be really, really bad. And he says, I want you to be free from concern. And so that's his heart. It's his pastoral heart saying, uh, I just want to prep you for what's coming. I want you to go forward with your eyes wide open. Uh, if you're going to go into this, make sure you know it's not going to be easy. You may determine that it's the best thing to do, it's the right thing to do, it's the wise thing to do, but I just want you to know I love you and I want you to uh, have these things in mind. He says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you. That's literally not to put a noose on you or, or a noose around your neck. Not trying to, you know, keep you from what you think is the good and wise thing to do. But he says, I want to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, the word for devotion comes from the Latin for to take a vow, to take and fulfill a vow. To be devoted is a very serious thing. It's something that you're very serious about. And, and you do what you have to do to fulfill that commitment. And so he's saying, in a sense, whatever you do, make sure that it's for the sake of undistracted devotion. He's not saying that you... This is the interesting thing about this, is that is he saying that you can't be devoted to the Lord and be married... That might be how it comes across, right? Because he says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. In verse uh, 32, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he goes on and talks about the woman uh, being in the same position. So is Paul saying married people can't be devoted to the Lord like they should be? No. Um Paul is not saying that it's more holy to be celibate, it's more holy to be unmarried. He's not arguing that, even though people in church history have argued that. What he's saying is there is a temptation to put the uh, priorities of your spouse above your, your serving the Lord. There's a temptation to uh, put... Um, your relationship, your human relationship above your relationship with Christ. Whereas when you're single, um, ideally, I mean, he's not saying that this is true for every single, but he's saying it, there's, a, there's a sense in which with regard to the issues of not being distracted with marriage, marriage you can be devoted to the Lord. And I've heard Jan talk about that when she was single, about that kind of a singular focus. And a lot of Christian singles will talk about how there can be a greater um, singular focus when you're single on the Lord, pleasing the Lord, doing what the Lord wants you to do. And Paul is highlighting that uh, when you get married and under the circumstances that you're going to be under, especially with the impending distress, Paul could say uh, the temptation might be to get your priorities out of whack. And, um, and so he's trying to encourage them to make sure that whether they get married or not, that their priority is to please the Lord. Because he said earlier in the chapter, you know, for some people, um, being single is more of an affliction than a blessing. Some people talk about single being a blessing because you can do so much, you, you're free to do so many things. But in verse 9, he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion, which means uh, for some people, especially if you don't have the gift of celibacy, being single is an affliction. It's difficult. It's hard. It's a distraction. So that to be married for someone like that helps to alleviate the distraction. It helps to actually be more devoted to the Lord in a certain sense. 
But for others who, who do have the gift of celibacy, content without marriage, content uh, without that physical intimacy, then there can be that um, devotion to the Lord. So it's a very personal thing. It's not a black and white issue for Paul. It depends on where you are. And so that's why we talked about the fact a couple of weeks ago that at the head of the list with regard to how do you pursue marriage as a Christian, number one, you pursue Christ as a Christian. And secondly, you pursue Christ-likeness. Those are the first two things at the head of the list with regard to pursuing marriage as a Christian. As a Christian, you pursue Christ and you pursue Christ-likeness because the question is, um, don't you want to be the kind of person you want to marry? Of course you do. At least we should. And that involves all kinds of things like Uh, being ready to forgive and love and accept people even as God has forgiven and loved and accepted you. And that's all about becoming like Christ and being free to do that because Christ is most important. And so Paul is wanting to encourage them to um, not think that when you get married, you shouldn't live to please your spouse. You should. Uh, Peter says, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. And so that means seeking to please your wife, wife seeking to please her husband. Uh, so it doesn't mean you don't live to please your, your husband or your wife, but it means they're not the person you ultimately live to please, which means your living to please Christ will shape how you live to please your husband and your wife. And so he's wanting to encourage them to make sure that their devotion to Christ is not being compromised either way. Either way that they go, whether they're staying single or getting married, that their devotion to Christ is not being compromised. Um, I thought about what uh, the psalmist in Psalm 23 uh, says, very famous psalm. You may remember in in verse 5, he says, um, actually verse verse 3, 23.3, he says, uh, speaking of the Lord, who is our shepherd, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, the word there, Hebrew word there for paths, is the picture of wagon tracks. Uh, my good shepherd Jesus leads me in wagon tracks of righteousness. And wagon tracks, especially in the the West, uh, in the early formations of our country, were often rutted tracks. And so what he's basically saying is, in a sense, uh, make sure you're maintaining um, good ruts in your life, one way or the other. Whatever your decision is, make sure there are good ruts. Mark, I think, mentioned the idea of getting out of bad ruts. There are bad ruts that we get into that we need to get out of. But there are good ruts, too. Seeking the Lord every day in, in the word and prayer, other things. There, there are good ruts to get into. And so if there's an impending distress and you're going to have a wife and kids, and that means you're going to leave behind all the good ruts because you're consumed with what's happening with your family, that's not a good thing to do. Uh, Paul says that's not wisdom. If you're going to be so distracted by all these other things, that you're leaving behind the good ruts, the, the ruts of righteousness, of seeking the Lord and living to please the Lord the most, and those good godly habits in your life, then maybe marriage isn't for you under the circumstances. Maybe you should wait. And so, um, which is just the, the idea of uh, make sure you have good ruts in place when you get married, because marriage is going to challenge those ruts. And so Paul is encouraging them to think about it uh, from these perspectives. Then he goes on and he talks about another area to consider, which is the area of sexual temptation with regard to the question, if and when should I get married? He says in verse 36, but if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin or betrothed, the word daughter is in italics in the New American Standard, which means it's not in the Greek. It's been added Uh, by the translators based on their uh, interpretation of what Paul is talking about. So uh, in the ESV, it doesn't have daughter. It has betrothed. Uh, It says, if she is past her youth, 
That's actually translated differently in the ESV too. It's translated, if his passions are strong. Uh, New American Standard points to the, the virgin. Um, ESV points to the man who has betrothed. Um, the, the literal way that's put is uh, be, beyond the peak. If this person is beyond the peak, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. Beyond the peak of what? Well, some take it as beyond the peak of marriageable age. This person is getting old, becoming uh, older, and people are beginning to uh, ask, why isn't this person married yet? Or they're beginning to ask, you know, I'm getting old here, you know, I don't want to spend too much more time single. That's one way it's taken. Another way it's taken is that it's referring to the man in the context of uh, sexual temptation, that the passions are getting so strong that it goes back to verse 9. If if you were burning with passion, it's better to marry than just to stay in that situation. So as I mentioned, there's three different ways this passage is looked at. One way is to say this is about a father and a daughter. And it's about the idea of the father giving the daughter in marriage. Another way it's looked at is from the perspective of what you call celibate marriage, where two Christians are married, but they've chosen to take a vow of celibacy. They're not going to have physical intimacy in their marriage for the sake of greater holiness. And then the third view is that it's about an engaged couple, what we would call an engaged couple, two people that are betrothed to each other. Uh, The second view about celibate marriage has the least uh, merit because Paul has already argued that if you don't have the gift of celibacy, then you should get married. And he doesn't argue that um, two people with the gift of celibacy should get married. And so the context doesn't seem to support that kind of idea. But there is, as you can see from the New American Standard, which leans toward the father-daughter interpretation, and the ESV that leans toward the engaged or betrothed, Um, couple interpretation. There are um, arguments on both sides. Personally, I think the the weight of the argument is on the side of the engaged or the betrothed, like the ESV translates it. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, First of all, acting unbecomingly toward your daughter doesn't sound exactly right. I think it um, probably the word uh, refers to being indecent toward uh, is probably the best way to understand it. And so that would make more sense in terms of uh, fiancé. Um, the idea of being pastor youth, again, uh, could be translated if his passions are strong. There's uh, good, valid reasons for looking at it that way. Uh, in the New American Standard, at the end, it says, let her marry. Uh, but that is not uh, true to the Greek because the Greek is plural, let them marry. And so let them sounds like a reference to the two people that were referred to before, which would, in one case would be a father and daughter, which wouldn't fit. But if it was a two people that are engaged, it would fit. Let them marry. And then the idea of giving in marriage, which is referred later in verse 38, I think it is, can also be translated simply to marry. It doesn't have to be translated give in marriage, which is the strongest argument for the way the New American Standard translates it. And so it seems like uh, the weight for me leans toward how the ESV understands what's going on there. Um, let me just highlight the fact that I think one of the things that is challenging about this, and this goes back to the question I asked at the beginning of the message, is are you comfortable with the black and white? Because whether you take this as a father and daughter situation or an engaged couple situation, what Paul does at the end in verse 38 is he says, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. How do you, how do you like the categories of doing well and doing better? Um, Can you imagine that God would be pleased both for the person who does well and the person who does better? I had a conversation, I think, with Emily who highlighted the fact that, um, you know what? If you have a choice between doing well and doing better, 
isn't it bad to do well when you can do better? It's almost like, well, if I don't know there's a way to do better, then maybe it would be okay. But if I know this is the better and this is just the well, aren't I choosing the lesser of the goods and isn't that bad? That's what I mean. It's not a black and white thing. Um, early on, after Jan and I got married, we had a kind of courtship. And uh, we were talking about this uh, recently, too, how um, there was a couple in our church at Coast at this point. At that point, they're not in our, at Coast anymore. But they wanted to hear our courtship story, how we came to know each other and how we moved toward, got to know each other, how we moved toward marriage and all that sort of thing. Courtship was a big thing then. 25, 26 years ago, we got married 26 years ago this Wednesday, which we'll be selling our, uh, selling, celebrating our anniversary. Thank you. Um, I've been hugely blessed by Jan. So, but this couple wanted to know, um, tell us all the details about how it happened. And it came out one way or the other that, especially the wife in the relationship, had the perspective that there was only one right way to do courtship. If courtship was the right way to do it, then there was only one way to do courtship. And so it seemed that she was very unsatisfied with the flexibility that we uh, had with regard to what may or may not happen in a courtship kind of situation that she really wanted it to be black and white because if you want to do God's will, isn't there only one will to be done? Isn't there only one way to do it? And isn't God only going to be pleased if I do it that one way? Well, Paul seems to shoot that full of holes with just this one verse when he says, Uh, You'll do well if you do this. You'll do better if you do this, which means God will be pleased either way. And God won't be up there saying, oh, they only did well. Can't believe they only did well. And yet, it's very easy for us to think that's the way it works. Romans 14 is another great illustration of that. If you read through Romans 14, it's about disputable matters. He says in verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt The one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. You mean one can eat and another cannot eat and have convictions about that and they can both be pleasing to God? Yes. He goes on to say one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. But the context is, he says in verse 7, not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. The issue is, am I pursuing what I am pursuing in devotion to Christ, to seek to please him in light of all that I know that the word of God says? And if we're doing that, God is pleased in so many cases when it isn't a matter of black and white, right or wrong. The last thing is the issue of considering not only circumstances, devotion to the Lord, the issue of sexual temptation, but also desirable partners. Paul kind of makes a transition at the end and addresses widows. And so uh, what he says is, in verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so um, Paul reminds them of the marriage rule. The marriage rule that God established in Genesis chapter 2 from the beginning is one man, one woman for life. That's the rule. But as we've talked about, there are exceptions to the rule. And Paul here says, once a spouse has died, um, that spouse is free to marry again. Um, But he mentions two guidelines. He says, number one, she's free to marry who she wishes, which might have been in the context, especially in light of the fact that um, some people didn't think being unmarried was a good thing. There might have been pressure to marry. Um, 
Paul is basically, in a sense, saying throughout the chapter, it's okay to be unmarried. You don't have to be married. In Jewish culture, being married was important. Uh, Paul is arguing throughout the chapter, it's also okay to be unmarried. It can be a good thing to be unmarried. But if you're a widow and you want to be remarried, then she's free to marry who she wishes, which means to marry someone you want to marry. With the other guideline in place, as long as they're a Christian in the Lord, so that you have a desirable partner that you want to marry, desirable in two ways. You actually desire to marry that person. You're not being pressured into it by society. You're not being pressured into it by people who think you need a partner or anything like that. You, but you actually desire to marry this person. You want to marry this person. And this person is desirable in the sense that they are a Christian. They're going to be joining with you and pulling in the same direction. You're not going to be marrying someone who's going to be pulling in an opposite direction. Now, we talked about last week that some people are saved in the midst of that kind of situation. And God still can work that together for good. And that can still be a blessing in various ways. But Paul says, um, essentially, you can date a missionary, uh, just don't missionary date. Okay? And so don't see getting married as... um, an opportunity to transform the unbeliever through marriage or anything like that. But Paul, again, says something that's very interesting to me in verse 40 when he says, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. Is being happier a Christian category? Can you be a Christian and actually think about which situation would make me happier? It's a biblical category because Paul says it right there. Now, he's saying it in the context of the impending distress, the troubles that can come with marriage when it's under a lot of pressure. Um, He's talking about it in terms of all kinds of circumstances that you have to take into consideration. And so he's talking about being happier as someone who is pursuing the Lord in that context, someone who is pursuing the Lord and devoted to Christ, happier in that respect. Um, so let me just wrap up this way. <clears throat> We've already mentioned this one time before in going through this chapter. Paul basically highlights that there are three important aspects to Christian decision-making. One is the question, what is right? Number two, the question is, what is wise? Number three, the question is, what is good? What is Right, wise, and good. The right is reflected in verse 19, which we have gone through, but we haven't read today. He says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And so the first question I need to ask as a Christian is, when I'm trying to make a decision, whether it's regard to marriage or anything else, what is right or wrong in light of the clear and specific commands in God's written word in the Bible. Um, So if somebody is posed with a question, should I get an abortion? Uh, The Bible says no. Should I marry an unbeliever? The Bible says no. And so those are issues of right and wrong in light of what the Bible clearly says. And so we should start there. We should always start with what is right or wrong, in light of what the Bible says. If the decision we have to make isn't fundamentally an issue of right and wrong, then we move on to the second question, which is, what is wise? And that's what the latter part of 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. When it talks about circumstances, the issue of your own personal devotion to the Lord, the issue of your own struggle with sexual temptation, the issue of who you want to marry, those are all wisdom type issues. And that's why Paul says, I give you my opinion or my judgment, but he doesn't say I command you to do this or that, because it's reflecting that kind of thing. And so that's why he says in verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. So that the question of what is wise is an issue of, in light of all that scripture says, 
and all the circumstances that I have to address or have to consider in view of all of this, what is the wise thing to do? And in view of the impending distress, in view of where I am spiritually, in view of my sexual temptation, in view of who I'm attracted to and desire to marry, in view of all those things, what should I do? Um, Should I get married and to whom is a wisdom issue? Should I get married and to whom? And then finally, the question of what is good is reflected in verse 39, where Paul simply says, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Do you have a category for, for a God who says, do what you want? Now that's within certain boundaries, right? Not do whatever you want, but within the boundary of what I've said is right and wrong, and within the boundary of what you've determined, all things considered, including scripture, to be wise, then you still have some flexibility there, even within those two boundaries. Uh, what if you have two, two guys that want to marry you that are great godly men? Do you have to spend days fasting and praying and determining which is the right guy? Paul doesn't say that. He says, marry who you want to marry. Who do, you, who do you really want to marry? What was your heart? Who are you really tra- attracted to? Within the boundaries that he's already laid out, there is a place for saying, do I like uh, red or green carpet? Do I, and even with the issues of marriage, I have opportunities. Is there one person I'm especially attracted to and re- would really like to marry that person? Or should I just assume that if I want to marry that person, God doesn't want me to? Because I have to suffer. That's what Christians are called to do, is to suffer. So there's no category for actually doing what you want to do. We actually, Janet and I actually are aware of a young lady who would argue, she's been through a divorce, and she would argue that her parents wanted her marriage, his parents wanted the marriage, he wanted the marriage, but she never did. And he, she felt compelled to get married, and that's what she struggles with, with. She struggles with today is is bitterness over that, and so Paul uh, encourages us to do what is right, to do what is wise, to do what is good, and to realize that that is the Christian life. That it isn't black and white. Uh, I can't just walk up to you and tell you what you're supposed to do in every situation. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't lead us as we consider what is right and wrong, as we consider what is wise, and as we consider what we really uh, desire and what our heart says. Well, let me conclude with this. Obviously, the foundation for all of this, we're, we're basically talking about Christians. And so the question is, what is the foundation for all of this decision-making? Well, it's being a Christian. And how does a person become a Christian? Well, it's through grace. And that grace, the gospel of grace, includes three things. It includes forgiveness. That because Jesus lived the life we can never live, died the death we deserve to die, and rose from the dead as the Lord over everything, he says, if you will entrust yourself to me, I will forgive you of all your sins. So that we move forward in our decision-making, knowing that we've already been forgiven of all of our sins, and even of all the wrong decisions we will make in the future. We move forward knowing that we are loved by God, accepted by God, and forgiven by God, so that we can go forward with our decision-making, not as condemned people, but as accepted and loved, and we can find freedom in that. We also um, know that because of grace, once we're forgiven of our sins, we've also been set free from the reign of sin over our lives, which means I can expect to grow in my understanding. I can expect to grow in my desire to please God and in my actually living to please God. And that even if I get married at a certain point, I can hope to actually grow in becoming a better husband, a better wife, 
because of the fact that the, the fundamental issue of my slavery to sin has been broken and that God will give me greater and greater grace as I seek him. And then finally, grace not only says you're forgiven and you're free to be in, begin growing, but that your focus changes. And this goes back to what Mark and Susan shared about what are you doing for God and for others. Um, grace, once we've experienced it, causes us to seek to show grace. As we've been loved by God, we seek to love as we've been loved, which means my focus is not on, is that person loving me, but am I loving that person? It's grace that does that. I'm forgiven. I've been set free to live a new kind of life, and that new kind of life is a life that focuses on loving like God loves, loving people who don't love me in return, because that's the only kind of people God loves, because that's the only people there are, are people who do not love God as they should, because that's what sin does. Sin means I do not love God and others as, as I should, and yet God loves us, and we're to love because we've first been loved. And so I would encourage you that if you're not trusting Christ, that you would agree with his testimony to his son, that you would agree with your need for a sinner to believe that Jesus is Lord and that he's an able and willing Savior for you and that you'd ask him for mercy. Ask him for mercy and give your life to him and you will be saved. You will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and apply it to our lives. And we pray that you'd meet the deepest needs of our heart for you, for Christ, and that you'd help us, whether we're considering things like marriage or not, whatever our decision-making might look like right now, we pray that it would be pleasing to you in light of all that your word tells us. And we pray, Lord, that you would be exalted, that we would have hearts that are pleased with you and live to please you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.